Part two of Portrait of a Man with Red Hair by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two, The Dance Around the Town, Section two. Well, I was touched by that, and I didn't like the man's face either. They went out. I came down to dinner. While I was waiting in the garden, an extraordinary man spoke to me. Extraordinary to look at, I mean. Short, fat, red hair. Oh, you needn't describe him, Dunbar interrupted. I know him. He came and asked me for a match. He was very polite, and finally invited me to dine with him, his son and daughter-in-law. I accepted. Of course, the son and daughter-in-law were the two that I had overheard upstairs. I saw that throughout dinner she was in great distress, and at the end, as we were leaving the room, I let her know that I had overheard her inadvertently before dinner, and that I was eager to help her if there was any way in which I could do so. We had only a moment. Crispin and his son were close upon us. She was, I suppose, at the end of her endurance, and snatched at any chance. So she told me to do this, to find you here and give you that message. That's all. Absolutely all. The door opened, making both men turn apprehensively. It was only the shabby little waiter with his tray and the whiskies. He set down the glasses, split the soda, and stared at them both as Dunbar paid him. "'Will that be all, gentlemen?' he asked, scratching his ear. "'Everything,' said Dunbar abruptly. "'Gentlemen sleeping here?' "'No, we're not. Good night.' "'Good night, sir.' With a little sigh, the waiter withdrew. The door closed, and instantly the ferns in the pots, the plush chairs and sofa, closed round as though they also wanted to hear. "'It's an extraordinary piece of luck,' Dunbar began. Then he hesitated. But I don't want to bother you with any more of this. It isn't your affair. You've come into it, after all, only by accident. He hesitated as though he were making an invitation to Harkness, and Harkness hesitated. He saw that this was his last opportunity of withdrawal. Once again he could hear the voice of the imp behind his shoulder. Well, clear out if you want to. You have still plenty of time, and this is positively the last chance I give you. He drank his whiskey, and, drinking, crossed his Rubicon. No, no, I'm interested, tremendously interested. Tell me anything you care to, and if I can be of any help. No, no, Dunbar assured him. I'm not going to drag you into it. You needn't be afraid of that. But I am in it, Harkness answered, smiling. I'm going back with Crispin to his house this evening. 7. The effect of that upon Dunbar was fantastic. The young man jumped from his chair, crying, You're going back? Yes. To the house? Why, yes. And tonight? He stared down at him as though he could not believe the evidence of his ears, nor of his eyes, nor of anything that was his. Then he finished his whiskey with a desperate gulp. But what's pushing you into this anyway? he cried at last. You don't look like the kind of man. And yet there you are on the hill that afternoon, and then at the hotel, and overhearing what Hester said, and then dining with a man, and his asking you— he did ask you, didn't he? Of course he asked me, Harkness answered. You don't suppose I'd have gone if he didn't. 
no i i don't suppose you would agreed dunbar i bet he offered to show you his jewels and his pictures his collections yes said harkness he did well that's just a miracle of good luck for me that's all you can help me tonight help me marvelously but i don't like to ask you things might turn out all wrong and then we'd all be in for a bad time and that wouldn't be fair to you he paused thinking then he went on i'll tell you what i'll do you saw that girl tonight and talked to her didn't you harkness nodded his head you saw that she was a damned fine girl harkness nodded again worth doing a lot for well i'll put the whole story to you let you have it all we've got nearly three-quarters of an hour i can tell you most of it in that time and then you can make up your mind if when i've told you everything you decide to have nothing whatever to do with it that's all right there's no obligation on you at all of course but if you did help me being in the house at that very time it would make the whole difference my god yes he ended with a sigh of eagerness staring at harkness harkness sat there thinking only of the girl his own personal history the town the dance crispin and his son all these things had faded away from his mind he saw only her as she had been when turning her head for a moment she had spoken to him with such marvellous self-control he loved her just as she stood there granting him permission to help her his own prayer was that it might not be long before he was allowed to help her again he was recalled to the immediate moment by dunbar's voice you'll forgive me if i go back to the beginning of things it's the only way really to explain have you ever heard of polchester a town in glebeshire north of this there's a rather famous cathedral there yes said harkness i thought i might go there from here well dunbar went on out of polchester about ten miles there's a village milton haxt i was born there and so was hester her name was hester tobin and she was the only daughter of the doctor of the place she had two brothers younger than herself we've known one another all our lives uh, wait a moment harkness interrupted are you and she the same age no i'm thirty she's only twenty you look younger than that or you did this afternoon i'm not so sure now indeed the boy seemed to have acquired some new weight and responsibility as he sat there no he went on when i said that we'd known one another always i mean that she's always known about me i used to take her on my knee and toss her up and down that was where all the trouble began if she hadn't been always used to me and fancied that i was years older than she a kind of grandfather she'd have married me married you harkness brought out yes i can't remember a time when i wasn't in love with her i always was and she never was with me she liked me she likes me now but she's always been so used to the idea of me i've always been david dunbar and that's all a friend who was always there but nothing more there was just a moment when i was missing for six months in the middle of the war i think she really cared then but soon they heard that i was safe in germany and it was all as it had been before were her father and mother living harkness asked her father 
her mother died when her youngest brother was born when she was only six years old the mother's death upset the father and he took to drink he'd always been inclined that way i expect he was too brilliant a doctor to have landed in that small village without there being some reason well after mrs tobin's death there was simply one trouble after another tobin's patients deserted him the big house on the hill had to be sold and they moved into a small one in the village he had been a big jolly laughing generous man before now he was always quarrelling with everybody insulting the few patients left to him and so on hester was wonderful how she kept the house together all those years nobody knew there was very little she didn't know about life by the time she was ten years old ordinary life i mean not this damned crispin monstrosity she always had the pluck and courage of the devil and you can fancy what i felt just now when you told me about her asking young crispin to let her off that swine he paused for a moment then went on hurriedly but we haven't much time i must buck ahead i was quite an ordinary sort of fellow of course but there was nothing i wouldn't do for her if i got a chance i helped her sometimes but not so much as i'd have liked she was always terribly proud all the things that happened at home made her hold up her head in a kind of defiance the odd thing was that she loved her father and the worse he got the more she loved him but she loved her younger brothers still more she was mother sister nurse everything to them and would be still if she'd been let alone they were nice little chaps too only a lot younger of course one three years and one six one's in the navy very decent fellow and if he'd been home he'd never have allowed any of this to happen well the war came when she was quite a kid i was away most of that time then in nineteen eighteen my father died and left me a bit of property there in milton i came home and asked her to marry me she thought i was pitying her and anyway she didn't love me and i hadn't enough of this world's good to make the old man keen about me then this devil came along dunbar stopped for a moment they both listened there was not a sound in the whole house what brought him to a village like yours asked harkness lowering his voice i shouldn't have thought that a man like that no you wouldn't said dunbar but that's one of his passions apparently suddenly landing on some small village where there's a big house and bossing everyone around him i shall never forget the day i first saw him it was just about a year ago i had heard that some foreigner had taken haxt that was the big house in milton that the dumbays the owners were too poor to keep up soon all the village was talking furniture arrived then lots of servants japs and all sorts then one evening going up the hill i saw him leaning over one of the hatched gates looking into the road it was a lovely july evening and he was without a hat you've spoken of his hair i tell you that evening it was just flaming in the sun it looked for a moment like some strange sort of red flower growing on the top of the gate he stopped me as i was passing and asked me for a match oh that's what he asked me for murmured harkness yes his opening gambits are all the same 
He offered me a cigarette, and I took one. We talked for a little. I didn't like him at first, of course, with his hair, white face, painted lips. But did you notice what a beautiful voice he has? I should think I did, said Harkness. And then he can make himself perfectly charming. The beginning of your acquaintance with him is exactly like your introduction to the villain of any melodrama. Painted face, charming voice, cosmopolitan, delightful information. The change comes afterwards. But I must hurry on. I'll never be done. I'm as bad as Conrad's Marlowe. Have another whiskey, won't you? No, thanks, said Harkness. Well, it wasn't long before he was the talk of the whole place. At first, everyone liked him. Odd, though he looked, you can just fancy how a man with his wealth and knowledge of the world would fascinate a countryside if he chose to make himself agreeable, and he did choose. He gave parties, he went round to people's houses, sent his motors to give old ladies a ride, allowed people to pick flowers in his garden, adored showing people his collections. I happened to be in Milton during the rest of that year, looking after my little property, and he seemed to take to me. I was up at Haxt a good deal. Looking back now, I can see that I never really liked him. I was aware of my caution, and laughed at myself for it. I like pretty things, you know, and I loved his jade and emeralds, and still more his prints and he knew so much, and was never tired of telling me, and never seemed to laugh at one's ignorance. He was, as I have said, all the talk that summer. It was Mr. Crispin this, and Mr. Crispin that, Mr. Crispin everything. The men didn't take to him much, but of course they wouldn't. They had always thought me a little bit queer, because I liked reading and played the piano. The first thing that people didn't like about him was his son. That beauty arrived at Haxt somewhere in September, and everybody hated him. I ask you, could you help it? And he was the exact opposite of his father. He didn't try to make himself agreeable to anybody, simply went about scowling and frowning. But it wasn't that that people disliked. It was his relation to his father. He was absolutely in his father's power. That is the only way to put it and there was something despicable, something almost obscene, you know, almost as though he were hypnotized the way he obeyed him, listening to his voice, slaved away for him. Oh, I noticed something of that myself this evening, said Harkness. You couldn't help it if you saw them together. Somehow the son, turning up beside the father, made the father look queer, as though the son showed him up. People round Milton were not very perceptive, you know, but they soon smelt a rat. Several rats, in fact. For one thing, the people in the village didn't like the Jap servants. Then one or two maids that Crispin had hired abruptly left. They wouldn't say anything except that they didn't like the place, that old Crispin walked in his sleep or something of the kind. It was just about this time, early in October or so, that Crispin became friendly with the Tobins. Young Crispin had a cold or something, and Tobin came up and doctored him. Crispin gave him the best liquor he'd ever had in his life, so he came again, and then again. 
that was the beginning of my dislike of crispin it seemed to me rotten of him when tobin was already going as fast downhill as he could to give him an extra push and crispin liked doing that one could see it at a glance i hated him from the moment when i caught him watching with an amused smile tobin fuddled in his chair you can imagine that tobin's drunkenness having cared for hester as i had for so long was a matter of some importance for me i had tried to pull him up without any sort of success of course and it simply maddened me to see what crispin was doing so i lost my temper and spoke out i told him what i thought of him he listened to me very quietly then he suddenly threw his head up at me like a snake hissing he said a lot of things that was the first time i heard all his nonsensical stuff about sensations we haven't time now and anyway it wasn't very new the philosophy that as this was our only existence we had better make the most of it that we had been given our senses to use not to stifle and the rest of it omar put it better than crispin he had also a lot of talk about power that if he liked he could have anyone in his power and so could i if i liked you had only to know other people's weaknesses enough and more than that some stuff about its being good for people to suffer that the thing that made life interesting and worth while was its intensity and that life was never so intense as when we were suffering that after all god liked us to suffer why shouldn't we be gods we might be if we only had courage enough it was then that morning that it first entered my head that there was something wrong with him something wrong with his brain it had never occurred to me during all those months because he had always been so logical but now he seemed to step across the little bridge that separates the sane from the insane you know how small that bridge is harkness nodded his head then all in a moment he took my arm and twisted it i can't give you any sort of idea how queer and nasty that was as he did it he peered into my face as though he didn't want to miss the slightest shadow of an expression then i don't know if you noticed when he shook hands with you his fingers haven't any bones in them and yet they are beastly powerful he ought to be soft all over and he isn't he twisted my arm once and smiled it was all i could do to keep from knocking him down but I broke away, told him to go to hell, and left the house. From that moment I hated him. It was directly after this that I noticed for the first time that he had his eye on Hester, and he had his eye upon her exactly because she hated him and wouldn't go near him if she could possibly help it. I must stop for a moment and tell you something about her you've seen her but you cannot have any kind of idea how wonderful she really is she has the most honourable loyal character you've ever seen in woman and she's never been in love she doesn't know what love is those are the two most important things about her that doesn't mean that she's ignorant of life 
there's nothing mean or sordid or disgusting that hasn't come into her experience through her beauty of a father but she stood up to it all until this this crispin marriage the first thing in her life she's funked she's been saved all along by her devotion to one thing her family her father and two brothers she must have given her father up pretty completely by now seeing that it was hopeless but her small brothers why they are the key to the whole thing if it weren't for them she wouldn't be where she is tonight and as i have said if the elder one had known anything about it he wouldn't have allowed it but he's away on a foreign station and bobby's too young to understand she was always very independent in the village keeping to herself not being rude to people you understand but making no real friends she simply lived for those two boys and she had to work so hard that she had no time for friends she knew that i loved her i had told her often enough she saw more of me than of anyone else and she would allow me to do things for her sometimes but even with me she kept her independence Tonight is the very first time in both our lives that she has begged me to do anything. He stopped for a moment. By God, he cried, if I can't help her tonight, I'll finish myself. There'll be nothing left in life for me. We will help her, Harkness said, both of us. But go on, time's advancing. I mustn't miss my appointment. No, by Jove, you mustn't, said Dunbar. Everything hangs on that. Well, to get on, it didn't take me very long to see what Crispin was doing to her father, and one day she went up to see him alone and begged him to be merciful. She says that he was charming to her, and that she hated him worse than ever. He promised her that he would stop her father's drinking, and, of course, he did not keep his promise, but made Dobin drink more than ever. It was round about Christmas that these things happened, and just about this time all sorts of stories began to circulate about him. He suddenly left, came over to Trellis, and took the White Tower, where you're going tonight. After he had gone, the stories grew in volume, the most ridiculous things you ever heard, about his catching rabbits and skinning them alive, and holding witches' sabbaths with his japs every kind of fantastic thing and all the women who had gone to see his pretty things and raved about him when he first came said they didn't know how they ever could have seen anything in him and that he deserved imprisonment and worse it was now that i discovered that hester was desperately worried i had known her all my life and had never seen her worried like this before she lost her color, was always thinking about other things when one spoke to her, and several times had been crying when I came upon her. Naturally, I couldn't stand this, and I bullied her until I got the truth out of her. And what do you think that was? Why, of all the horrible things that the younger Crispin had asked her to marry him, and that all the time her blackguard of a father was pressing her to do it you can imagine what i felt like when i heard this i cursed and swore and blasphemed and still couldn't believe that she was in any way taking it seriously until when i pressed her i found that she was she was always as obstinate as sin had her own way of looking at things made up her own mind and stuck to it 
She didn't hate the son as she hated the father, although she disliked the little she'd seen of him well enough. But remember, she knew very little about marriage. All her thoughts were on those two boys, her brothers. I found out that old Crispin had offered Tobin any amount of money if he'd give his daughter up, and that Tobin had put this to Hester, telling her that he was desperately in debt, that he'd be put in prison if the money didn't turn up from somewhere, and above all that the boys would be ruined if she didn't agree, that he'd have to take the younger boy away from school, and so on. I did everything I could. I went and saw Tobin and told him what I thought of him, and he was drunk as usual, and we had a scuffle, in the course of which I unfortunately tumbled him over. Hester came in and saw him on the floor, turned on me, and then said she'd marry young Crispin. I begged, I implored her. I said that if she would marry me, I'd give her everything that I had in the world, that we'd managed so that Bobby shouldn't have to be taken away from school, and the rest of it. Then Father Tobin got up from the floor and asked me with a sneer how much I'd got, and I tried to bluster it out, but of course they both of them knew that I hadn't got very much. Anyway, Hester was angry with me, ashamed, I think, that I'd seen her father in such a state, and her pride hurt that I should know how badly they were placed. She accepted young Crispin by the next mail. If the Crispins had actually been there in the flesh, I don't think she would have done it, but some weeks' absence had softened her horror of them, and she could only think how wonderful it was going to be to do all the marvelous things for the boys that she was planning. I'm sure that when young Crispin did turn up with his long body and cadaverous face, she repented and was frightened, but her pride wouldn't let her then back out of it. I had one last talk with her before her marriage. I begged her to forgive me for anything that I had done that might seem casual or insulting, that she must put me out of her mind altogether, but just consider in a general way whether this wasn't a horrible thing that she was doing, marrying a man that she didn't love, taking on a father-in-law whom she hated. She was very sweet to me, sweeter than she had ever been before. She just shook her head and let me kiss her, and I knew that this was a final good-bye. 8. She married Crispin and came to Trellis. I wasn't at the wedding. I heard nothing from her. And then a story came to my ears that, after I had once heard it, gave me no peace. It was an old woman, a Mrs. Martin. She had, months before, been up at Haxt doing some kind of extra help. She was an old mottled woman like a strawberry, I'd known her all my life, and a grandmother. She suddenly left, and it was only weeks after Crispin went that I found out why. She was very shy about it, and to this day I've never discovered exactly what happened. Something one evening when she was alone in the kitchen, preparing to go home. The elder Crispin came in, followed by one of his japs. He made her sit down in one of the kitchen chairs, sat down beside her, and began to talk to her in his soft, beautiful voice. What it was all about to this day she doesn't know. 
some of his fine stuff about sensation i dare say and the benefit of suffering so that you could touch life at its fullest i shouldn't wonder anyway an old woman like mrs martin who had borne eight or nine children of her husband who beat her knew plenty about suffering without crispin trying to teach her anyway he went on in his soft beautiful voice and she sat there bewildered fascinated a bit by his red hair which she told me she never could get out of her mind like and the jap standing silent beside her suddenly crispin took hold of her old wrinkled neck and began stroking it putting his face close to hers talking 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 all the time then the jap stepped behind her caught the back of her head and pulled it what would have happened next i don't know had not the younger crispin come in and at the sight of him the older man instantly got up the jap disappeared it was as though nothing had been old mrs martin got out of the house then tumbled to pieces in the shrubbery she was ill for days afterwards but she kept the whole thing quiet with a kind of villager's pride you know she wasn't going to have other folks talking as they did anyway when they saw how quickly she had left but she told one of her daughters and the daughter told me there was almost nothing in the actual incident but it told me two things one that the older crispin really is mad definitely positively insane the other that the son in spite of his seeming so submissive has some sort of hold over him there is something between the two that i don't understand well that decided me i went to trellis to find out what i could i had to hang about for quite a time before i could learn anything at all crispin was going on at trellis just as he had done at milton he'd taken this strange house outside the town which you'll see tonight quite a famous place in a way built on the sea cliff with a tangled overgrown wood behind it and a high white tower that you can see for miles over the countryside at first the people liked him just as they had done at milton and were interested in him then there were stories and more stories suddenly only a week ago he said he was going abroad and to-morrow he's going now the point i want to make clear to you is that the man's mad i'm not a clever chap i don't know any of your medical theories i've never had any leaning that way but i take it that the moment that any one crosses the division between sanity and insanity it means that they can control their brain no longer that they are dominated by some desire or ambition or lust or terror that nothing can stop no fear of the law of public shame of losing social caste crispin is mad and hester whom i love more than anything in this world and the next is in his hands completely and absolutely they go abroad to-morrow morning where no one can touch them the time's been so short and i've not been sufficiently clever to give you any clear idea of the man himself i've got practically no facts you can't say that his stroking an old woman's neck is a fact that proves anything 
all the same i believe you've seen enough yourself to know that it isn't all imagination and that the girl is in terrible peril my god sir the boy's voice was shaking before the war there were all sorts of things that didn't seem possible we knew that they couldn't exist outside the books of the storytellers but the wars changed all that there's nothing too horrible nothing too beastly nothing too bad to be true yes and nothing too fine nothing too sporting and this thing is quite simple there are those two madmen and my girl in their hands and only tonight to get her out of them i must tell you something more he went on more quietly i've been making desperate attempts to see her and at the same time to prevent either of those devils from seeing me i saw her twice once in the grounds of the white tower once on the beach below the house neither time would she listen to me i could see that she was miserable altogether changed but all that she would say was that she was married and that she must go through with what she had begun she begged me to go away and leave trellis her one fear seemed to be lest crispin should find out i was there and do something to me her terror of him was dreadful to witness but she would tell me nothing i hung about the place and made a friend of a fisherman he had up there working on the place jabez marriott you saw him on the hill to-day he's a fine fellow he's only been working on the grounds had nothing to do with inside the house but he didn't love the crispins any better than i did and he had lost his heart to hester she spoke to him once or twice and he would do anything for her i sent letters to her through him she replied to me in the same way but they were all to the same effect that i was to go away quickly lest crispin should do something to me that she wasn't being badly treated and that there was nothing to be done then about a week ago crispin saw me it was in one of the trellis lanes and we met face to face he just gave me one look and passed on but since then i've had to be terribly careful all the same i've made my plans all that was needed was her consent to them and that until to-night she has steadily refused to give however something worse than usual has broken her down what he has been doing to her i don't know i dare not think but to-night i've got to get her out i've got to or never show my face anywhere again now i've told you this as quickly as i could will you help me harkness stood up holding out his hand yes he said i will it can be beastly you know that's all right you don't mind what happens i don't mind what happens sportsman the two men shook hands they sat down again dunbar spread out a paper on the little green-topped table this is a rough plan of the house he said i can't draw but i think you can make this out please forgive this childish drawing he said again it's the best i can do i think it makes the main things plain here's the house the tower over the sea the wood the garden the high road now look at this other plan of the second floor you'll see from this that hester's room is at the very end of the house and her husband's room next to hers 
The two guest rooms are empty, and there are no other bedrooms on that floor. The picture gallery runs right along the whole floor. The small library is a rather cheerful, bright room. Crispin has put his prints in there, some on the walls, the rest in solander boxes. The large library is a gaunt, dusty, deserted place, hung with heads of many animals that one of the pontifexes, the real owners of the place, shot at some time or other. No one ever goes there. In fact, this second floor is generally deserted. Crispin spends his time either in the tower or on the ground floor. He is in the small library playing about with his prints some of the time, though. Now, my plan is this. I have told Hester everything to the very tiniest detail, and all that she had to do was to send word at any moment that she agreed to it. That she has now done. Tonight, at one o'clock, I'm going to be up the high road under the shadow of the wood at the back of the kitchen garden with a jingle and pony. A jingle? asked Hartness. Yes, a, a jingle is Cornish for a pony trap. The obvious thing for me to have had was a car, but after thinking about it, I decided against it for a number of reasons. One of them was the noise that it makes in starting. Then it might easily stick over the ground that we shall have to cover. Then I fancy that it will be the first thing that Crispin will look for if he starts in pursuit. We have only to go three miles anyway, and most of it over the turf of the moor. Only three miles? Harkness asked. Yes, I'll tell you about that in a moment. Crispin Sr. is pretty regular in his movements, and just about one o'clock he goes up to his bedroom at the top of the tower with his two Japs in attendance. That is the only time of day or night that one or another of those Japs isn't hanging about somewhere. They are up there with him on exactly the opposite side of the house from Hester's room at just that time. That leaves only young Crispin. We shall have to chance him, but according to Jabez, he has the habit of going to bed between eleven and twelve, and by one o'clock he ought to be sound asleep. However, that is one of the things we ought to look out for, one of the things indeed that I want your help about. Meanwhile, Jabez is patrolling in the grounds outside. Jabez, Harkness cried, startled. Yes, that is our great piece of luck. Crispin has had some fellow of his own in the grounds all the time. But three nights ago he sent him up to London on some job, and Jabez has taken his place. I don't think he trusts Jabez altogether, but he trusts the others still less. He's always cursing the Cornishman, and they don't love him any the better for it. Well, when you've got safely to your pony cart, what happens next? We drive up Shepherd's Lane, down across the moor, until we reach the cliff just above Starling Cove. Here I've got a boat waiting, and we'll row across that corner of the bay to another cove, Selton, and just above Selton is Selton Minor, where there's a station. At four in the morning, there's the first train, local, to Truro, and at Truro we can catch the six o'clock to Drymouth. In Drymouth there are an uncle and aunt of hers, the Bresdens, who have long been fond of her, and wanted her often to stay with them. Stephen Bresden is a good fellow, and will stand up for her, I know, once she's in his hands. 
Then we can get the law to work. Won't Crispin be after you before you reach the Truro train? Well, I'm reckoning first that he doesn't discover anything at all until he wakes in the morning. They are making an early start for London that day, but he shouldn't be aware of anything until six, at least. But secondly, if he does, I'm calculating that first he'll think she's catching the three o'clock trellis to Drymouth, or that she's motored straight into Truro. If he goes into Truro after her, or sends young Crispin, I'm reckoning that he won't have the patience to wait for that six o'clock, or won't imagine that we have, and will be sure that we will have motored direct into Drymouth. He'll post after us there. I don't think he knows about the Bresdens and Drymouth. He may, but I don't think so. Of course, it's all chance, but I figure that it is the best we can do. And what's my part in this? asked Harkness. Of course, you're not to do a thing more than you want to, said Dunbar, but this is where you could be of use. The thing that we're mainly afraid of is young Crispin. Hester can get out of her room easily enough. It is only a short drop onto an outhouse roof, and then a short drop from there again. But if young Crispin is moving about, coming into her room and so on, it may be very difficult. What I suggest is that you stay with the older Crispin, looking at his collections and the rest, until half-past twelve or so, then bid him a fond good night and go. Wait for a quarter of an hour in the grounds. Jabez will be there, and then at about a quarter to one he will let you into the house again. Crispin Sr. should be up in the tower by then, but if he isn't, you can pretend that you've lost something, take him back into the small library where the prints are, and keep him well occupied until after one. If he has gone up to his tower, Hester will leave a small piece of white paper under her door if Crispin Jr. is in the way and hanging about. In that case, I should knock on his door, apologize, say that you lost your gold matchbox, had to come back for it as they are all leaving early the next day, think it must be in the small library. He goes back with you to look for it, and uh, you keep him there. Do you think you could manage that? I will, said Harkness. There's more than that. One of the principal reasons that Hester refused to consider any of this was, well, running off alone with me in the middle of the night. But if you are with us, someone, if I may say so, so entirely respectable, Harkness suggested, as Dunbar hesitated. Well, yes, if you don't mind that word. It alters everything, don't you see? Especially as you've never seen me before, aren't in love with her or anything. Exactly, said Harkness gravely. There you are. The thing's full of holes. It can fall down in all sorts of places, and if Crispin catches us and knows what we are up to, it won't be pleasant. But there's nothing else. No other plan that seems any less dangerous. Are you for it, sir? I'm for it, said Harkness. At that moment, the little marble clock struck the half hour. My God, Harkness cried, I should be at the hotel this very minute. If I miss them, there's our plan spoiled. He gripped Dunbar's hand once and was off. End of Part 2, Section 2